trust in money remains the bedrock of stability. The soul of money is trust. I, I think we are not paying sufficient attention to the law of unintended consequences. In the immortal words of the doors, the time to hesitate is through. Anish Kaveh, how are you, man? Doing well. I am enjoying my work in what's left of the capitalist economy in the United States. <laughs> and if I can, if I can take a quick break to talk about Bitcoin, I'm game. <laughs> yeah, it's tough out there, right? For uh, for someone that's just looking to produce and provide value. My goodness. Yeah, it's the agony and the ecstasy of. I guess I would say entrepreneurship, but capitalism in general. And I think this is one of the fundamental misunderstandings. Actually, just a thought. Thomas Sowell said that the, the vision of the left is that man is born free, but everywhere in chains. And so the leftist, and this is not a pejorative, the left and right are just different perspectives on reality, or at least on politics and economics. And the perspective there is our institutions are flawed, whereas the conservative perspective is that man is flawed from day one. And all of that to say, I accept hard work and struggle as part of capitalism and entrepreneurship because the alternative or the state of man in nature is starvation. And this is, one, this is why I think socialism is so popular in extremely rich countries only, never in countries where it was actually practiced, because <laughs> individuals forget that. They... They really do. Um, it sounds to me like the left should check their privilege, right? That's funny. Uh, I, without, <laughs> without taking a position on that, and uh, I guess just, just to set, I, I do have a conservative worldview, but I try to be very careful to make sound first principles arguments for my positions. Absolutely, and yeah. The, it is very ironic uh, to, to take a, a principled stance or to examine a topic that's hot in America well, one is gun control, and one can imagine what the libertarian perspective on that would be. But what's very ironic is that the people who are making the legislation either have security details. They're you know people followed like the president and Congress. They're they're literally people with guns and guns that aren't even legal for sale into the the common folk. Uh, number one that follow them around, or they live in neighborhoods that are so rich that the thought of them having to defend themselves from an attacker is totally foreign. So I think that's that puts a little meat behind this idea of, of checking their privilege. And it's less about the left and the right. It's it's the laptop class, I think, is, is the way to put that, because that's at least not political. Oh, no doubt. I mean, look, to be honest, uh, I, I find the laptop class is a pejorative because I'm sitting in front of a laptop right now. <laughs> yeah, Sorry. Me too. <laughs> uh, I, I, I put it in, in buckets of, um, you know, productive versus counterproductive or unproductive. I like Marty Bent's counterproductive class. Um, but one of the, one of my, uh, favorite, um, or preferred, uh, dichotomies is the coercivists versus the voluntarists. And that spectrum I think adds a heck of a lot of clarity to uh, a POV, a worldview 
that you can you can go out into the world and and actually uh, align yourself with the people that are voluntarily opting into certain activities as opposed to those that are coercing others to do certain activities. Uh, so I could care less about the left and the right and anybody checking their privilege and stuff. That's beyond me now. I, uh, I believe firmly that you either voluntarily sign up to do an activity or you are forced to do it and, you know, you've either got autonomy and individualism, sovereignty, or you're a slave, basically. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. And the left-right dichotomy, is, I, I think it's played to some extent. There are a lot, of, there are other polarities that are more interested. interesting. You mentioned one of them, coercive, coercion versus voluntarism. Another one is liberty versus statism. And left versus right is kind of a lazy proxy for all those kinds of things. But the important, the reason that's important to A, name the polls accurately, and B, to focus on the matter of principle is that in this, we're, I think the age of information has come and gone. I think we're in the age of information overload now. And I think the point of that is the facts are much more fluid than anybody would like to admit, which is to say the amount of research that an individual needs to do to understand a complex topic uh, let, let's just say um, sex versus gender, number one. Let's say climate change, number two. Let's say epidemiological policy. There's The individual does not have time and not even necessarily have the expertise to research and understand those topics. However, if we take the matter of principle and we set liberty at, okay, well, what is liberty? It is private property rights, number one, and it is the ability to act freely until and unless you impinge on the freedom of others. And this kind of basic philosophy is very important for the world to grasp because we aren't going to scale without it because a fact-based approach to the world, it is very important. And I, I admire and build upon and use every day the works of science, which is this foundational evidence-based method of progressing and constructing and questioning. But in order for individuals to participate at global scale, the rules are going to need to be simpler and they're going to need to be derivable by anyone. I wouldn't say in the absence of facts, but even on complex topics is what I would say. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, yeah, mind your business, act within your own surroundings, um, on your, the local knowledge that you have, and, um, and don't be a dick. You know, the non-aggression principle. It's as simple as that. We can, we can, we can achieve quite a lot if you respect others and their private property. Uh, non-aggress against them, and um, and just kind of crack on with the intent of providing value to others. That um, those bare bones are um, incredibly effective for scaling civilization, such as we've we've seen in history, and. The exact opposite is true. We can we can degrade civilization by uh, acting counter to those principles. I guess um, this is the Discovering Bitcoin podcast, and I just want to say thank you for sharing your scarce time, finite energy on the pod, discussing uh, you know your Genesis story, and I really enjoyed that little opening gambit we just we just went on and we dove pretty deep straight away but i'm going to pull it back up and and ask how did you discover bitcoin yeah i this uh 
brings me back. I think the year is 2011, if I remember correctly. And I was friends with and am friends with a guy named Balji Srinivasan. And he uh, founded an omics company. He worked at Andreessen Horowitz. He was then CTO at Coinbase for a while. So I've known and respected this guy for a long time. And he has been talking about Bitcoin for as long as I can remember. Mm-hmm. And that was my first... I wouldn't call it a trip down a rabbit hole. He used to say really simple things. And this is going back, what, 12 years now. He used to say, you know, just buy some Bitcoin and see, (laughs) you know, which is a hilarious thing to say because the year is 2011 and the price (laughs) didn't look anything like it does now. So I have to credit Balaji for being the first person to get me to think about, to to acknowledge the existence of Bitcoin. I don't think, I, I didn't understand it for almost a decade after that. And I think I started really wanting to understand it after I read Safe's Bitcoin Standard. Mm -hmm. And then I didn't really, really understand it until I had been through Mises, uh, been through some Austrian economics and had learned more. My background is in computer science, but had learned more about the protocol. So Andreas Antonopoulos's book. So it's a long journey. I feel like I'm still learning. And, you know, there are many phases, uh, but just the discovering phase of, oh, there's something interesting started for me in 2011. That's really cool. Um, were you immediately, did you take Balaji's advice and, you know, just siphon away a little, a little, a little bit here and there, or did it, did you have to read more, research more, study more, learn more before getting skin in the game, so to speak? Yeah. I, I try, I mean, 2020 hindsight, I, I could have, <laughs> I should have just bet the farm. <laughs> yeah, but what, we all should have. <laughs> was saying, uh, I mean, I stuck my toe in the water and is what at that point. And then it was a gradual process of like gaining more, more faith in the protocol, seeing it, it unfold over time. And, and also honestly, the market, you know, Coinbase used to be the only way to acquire Bitcoin, at least that's probably not true. You, there probably was individual sales, then came Bisque and now their strike and so many other things. So I, I started very, very small, put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, did it ever, was it jarring to you? I mean, you came at it from, you mentioned safe and then that kind of led you to Mises and the Austrian school. Um, and then you came back around to, I guess the comp sci side of things with um, Andreas Antonopoulos's Mastering Bitcoin book. Um, did, were you initially switched on to this thing just because of your respect and reverence for Balaji? Or did, was there some sort of comp sci tweak that sort of triggered your interest? I mean, what compelled you, I guess, initially to read Safe's book? Because it seems like that was the catalyst. Yeah. What compelled me to read Safe's book? So I, I definitely think in the beginning, I, I was like, okay, if Balaji is taking this seriously, I'm going to at least try and understand what it is. Uh, so, so initially, but then it's kind of a Bitcoin is a looker in that it's very hard to examine it for me, at least to examine it even a little bit, like immediately as a computer scientist, there are all kinds of things to be interested in right away. Distributed protocols, Merkle trees, how the mempool works. So it was a little bit of both. I think Balji said, hey, this is a shiny object. And <laughs> then that shiny object kind of held its shine under scrutiny, which isn't a common property for me, at least. And what I'm trying to remember what actually fomented me into reading Safe's book. 
I don't, I think I started, this is going way back again, 2011, that, that time frame. I think there was a Bitcoin Twitter at that time. And I just, it's, it's kind of like in for a penny, in for a pound where you found, you fought, you follow one or two people who have gone down the rabbit hole and then you kind of end up following the people that they're following. And so I think it was a, a snowball picking up momentum for me is how I would look at that. And it really broke open in that I realized safe, I, I do think safe wrote a good book and I haven't read the Fiat Synergy yet, which is actually interesting or his principles of economics book. I think he wrote a very sound book. He's very convincing. I also knew while I was reading it that he wasn't fully objective, or at least I had that and have that perspective. But I did see him willing enough to uh, not justify, but explain his arguments. And I think that's one of the only thing that matters is that how, how well do arguments hold up under logical scrutiny? Evidence matters to some extent. And Austrian economics is a very interesting and counterintuitive relationship to evidence, which you can talk about. But yeah, I think it's uh, interest and then inquiry and then where does that process of inquiry take you? And so, you know, I'm grateful for both those influences, uh, both for SAFE and for Bology for kind of starting that conversation. And, you know, the year is 2023. It's it's more than a decade later. And then those guys still talk about Bitcoin all the time. Yeah, they, they sure do. I mean, Bitcoin Twitter is a, as a, as a propeller to um, compel someone down this rabbit hole as, as a sort of like... A, You've got these these uh, avatars online that are that are sort of encouraging you, goading you in a way to um, to continue picking up the breadcrumbs and seeing where the where the rabbit hole leads. You know that, <laughs> and and some people get turned off from that from the get go. They they see they interact with a particular avatar that that could be perceived as hostile, and um, that switches them off straight away. So, I mean, it's it's cool that you had. It at least piqued your curiosity from the get-go. You didn't shut it down straight away. Um, and I guess that was because of the, the, the sort of filter that was coming through from um, Balaji, but then also, um, I guess, your own background in um, CompSci and all that sort of stuff, which is cool because a lot of people, I mean, there's a lot of people in the world that just shut it down immediately, you know. It's interesting. You just rem reminded me of something which I hadn't remembered. And that's that. Uh, so one of my first questions, and again, I'm going back 10 years was, well, what, what is this Ethereum thing? And immediately I went to, okay, like, okay, if Bitcoin is gold, is Ethereum silver? And like these kind of naive metaphors. And actually, funny story, SAFE actually took the time. <laughs> I'm thinking now, you know, he either wouldn't take the time or the answer might be more derisive because he's probably gotten tired of this. But SAFE actually took the time. I asked him, I pushed them on them. I was like, what is it that really makes Bitcoin unique? Why can't we have other digital currencies? And that is where, and this was part, this is before I read SAFE's book, actually, if I remember correctly. That's where he explained this, this concept of hash rates. And he said, that this is, he didn't use these words, but he said, this is effectively a network effect that cannot easily be mimicked or reproduced by another coin. And by the way, hash rate and security budget are not the same. And we can talk about that. But the, that as a computer scientist and as a, I don't know, somebody who kind of lived in and around the startup ecosystem, this concept of a network effect wasn't lost on me. And what mm -hmm. I understood was that embeddedness in a network is very powerful. Networks grow according to something called Metcalfe's law, which it's faster than linear, it's n squared. And once network exists, once a network exists, it tends to persist, especially if it's of a given size. So that was this concept of a hash rate and the hash rate being part of, well, being related to the security budget, they're very much not the same. 
that got me thinking, it's like, oh, wait, this is a network effect that's happening here. And the network that has the most counterparties and the highest security budget is very likely to be the network that predominates. And I, as curious as I was about Ethereum and Monero and some of these other things, I mostly stayed clear of them and now see no reason to own either of those assets. I mostly stayed clear of them just on my understanding that, wait a minute, this is a network effect thing. And, you know, MySpace was a, a social network at one time. Now there's Facebook, right? So anyway, uh, that uh, was part of my journey was understanding what is unique about the Bitcoin network effect and then also the immutability of the protocol. And I guess there's two things I would say as a computer scientist that why Ethereum doesn't make sense to me. And one is every reliable system has a very simple core. And anybody who's worked in software engineering can just tell you, and any kind of engineering can tell you this, simplicity wins almost all the time. And Bitcoin has one job, and its job is to count, and that is done through the UTXOs, and that's how the accounting system works. Ethereum has so many jobs, and I don't even think the people who run and write Ethereum know what that one job is. So it is a very confused <laughs> system teleologically, right? A world computer or this, I don't know, changing people's lives. Like, I don't understand any of that, or at least I can't back it out in anything concrete. And then, and then of course, the protocol can never change. And, and if you change the protocol even once, that is, uh, that invalidates the idea that the protocol is inviolate. Yeah. I mean, Pete Wynn on an earlier episode of Discovering Bitcoin, uh, sort of explain that a little bit with regards to um, getting the cart before the horse, so to speak, with re with regards to Ethereum. At least you were um, uh, cognizant enough to to not bother uh, expending any capital on on those sorts of um, tokens, altcoins, shitcoins, whatever you want to call them, uh, because a lot of people again um, do. Heed the, the the siren song of these things and and expend a little bit of capital. Hand up, you know. I chucked a little bit in at one point, and learnt my lesson. Cost of tuition is high. Yeah, the uh, in those days, so two thousand eleven, two thousand twelve, there was massive conflicts of interest too. So even if you, no matter how you, you owned a tiny tiniest amount of Bitcoin, you woke up one morning and you had the same value in Bitcoin Cash. Like this literally happened. Okay. And this is one of the conflicts of interest with Coinbase and people working at Coinbase is like, if they know an event like this is coming, that's an instant 2x. So it's, I don't know, all I'm saying is that it's because at the time when the Bitcoin cash fork initially appeared, I feel, I don't remember if there was dollar parity or what happened to the valuation, but it was pretty close to it at the time. So I don't know, that is a conflict of interest with the exchanges that we do examine and is very much apropos for this unregistered securities discussion that is happening. And it's not that I take a position on that as a libertarian. I just think that it's important for us to understand that scarcity happens once, or if we think it's going to happen a second time, we should have a good reason for justifying that. Yeah. Which is why the MySpace, Facebook, blah, blah, blah argument doesn't work because it's, they're not the same. You can't compare them. Yeah. And it wasn't, the genre of social networks still had a single winner. I guess you can say it looks like the genre of cryptocurrency will have a single win winner. And there are different dynamics. There are winner-take-all dynamics. Uh, there are oligarchies, like kind of different, or oligopolies, I should say, 
that so there are different dynamics with how networks can play out. But again, for me, I cannot either from an engineering or a pre-mine perspective for my own self justify buying Ethereum. That's me. Uh, I may end up being wrong at some point. And I guess I am a maximalist in the sense that I think it's most conducive for the future and the evolution of the community if we focus on the single protocol that we believe to be sound and do you know the, the other fancy things in layer two or don't even necessarily use a blockchain. This is another thing which if all you have is a hammer, you will tend to regard everything as a nail. And when blockchains, quote unquote, first came out, Bitcoin being the first one, people like, oh, we're going to use this for everything. We're going to use it for healthcare. It's a very inefficient database unless you need a trustless protocol and unless you don't have a central clock, right? So all of that to say that the blockchain is not like a solution to everything, but for money, it does seem to be the strongest invention that we've seen so far. Well, it's it's almost like so in your uh, in your uh, text. So the, one of the reasons I I reached out uh, to see if you'd like to come on this podcast, and you know the pod doesn't really delve into sort of macro or certain subjects. We we sort of touch on them as we go around because most of it is just the personal journey of of discovering Bitcoin. But uh, with respect to this um, Bitcoin versus Ethereum or any of the other altcoins. Um, you could almost argue it's a little bit like central planning um, versus emergent order. Um, and, you know, that's a, that's a concept that you touch upon in a, um, a piece that you wrote about a year ago called Complexity, Austrian Economics and the Computational Limits of Central Planning. And you pull on threads from Hayek and Mises and a lot of the Austrian school and you compare it to you opened my eyes to this concept of a memoration of starlings and how um like i just love that i love that metaphor and i've mentioned it many times on this pod i think uh in p- past episodes where by uh this flock of starlings of literal what do you say literal bird brains thousands in number are all operating on their own self-interest and from a distance at scale it just looks like this beautiful cloud or waveform in the sky and not a single bird is is um, disrupting another one because they're all acting in harmony in unison uh, and yet the tendency for a bureaucrat or someone of an ethereum type bent would be to command and control that centrally and to decide whether they should go up down left right whatever it is and the alternative to that is to sort of let it run and watch what happens. Yeah, I'm fascinated. Uh, there's a lot to, to establish there. And I think you explained why starlings are an important metaphor in economics, precisely because the rule sets and their perception are very limited, but the emergent behavior is very complex and it scales very well. And that's important because going back to where we started, it's sure it's very easy to say private property rights voluntarism. But at least half the planet is terrified that that will not work and that will lead to the exploitation of the working class. And therefore, all these examples... Now, there's two important things to establish about the memoration of starlings. It is distributed, but it is not chaos. So there are definite rules that govern, and you can show this in a simulation, that, that govern the behaviors of individual birds. And they're very simple. There's a very small number of these rules that you can establish. So there are rules. So it cannot be called anarchy. That's the first point. And the second point is that when there are definitive rules 
that limit the action of individuals and include the self-interest of those individuals, you can get very, very complex and large systems to evolve from that that produce effects that no individual bird could predict, but that are beneficial in some sense to the entire flock. And, and that's a great metaphor for me. And, you know, this is something that I'm still learning. And I think it has taken years and years and years for these ideas to percolate in my head. And it is the, the terse way of saying this, the concise way of saying this is we can have order without organizations. And this is the, the central thesis of, of Hayek's fatal conceit is that it is an error. It is a received error through history and through philosophy, both in the social sciences and in economics, that the only order that is worth having comes from planning. And that's just not true. And it's not true demonstrably in the Starlings example. Uh, It's not true for money, how money arises. It's not true for law. It's not even true for science. It tries to be sometimes, but there's no central coordinating body for science. Anybody can submit a scientific paper and have their evidence reviewed. So, yeah, I don't know. I think this is this is uh, a lesson and a metaphor that I'll never get tired or bored of because it means that I am participating in a system according to rules. I like that part. But that also we can generate global structures and global order without having to know what those structures will be and without having to be coerced by any agency or individual as to what the outcome should be. Right. So in a way it's aligned it's aligned incentives um you have these rules without rulers so you're able to participate in the game and play the game to the best of your ability and you can level up as you wish depending on how much work you want to put in but the rules will never change so you have a equal opportunity so to speak uh to to achieve the outcomes that you desire uh, without worrying about other players uh, on the field being favorited uh, by certain, um, you know, subsections of 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 the team or whatever. I'm not sure if this metaphor is falling apart in rapid time, <laughs> um, but the point is, is that we can. The rules allow us to align our incentives to play the game fairly. And justly, um, such that we can all uh, benefit from it. Even if, even if uh, we don't personally, um, you know, win, so to speak. Where, where the fuck am I going with this? I don't know. <laughs> no, it made sense. I, I, I followed. I followed where you were going with that. And the, I guess this is. I thought a little bit about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which is to say that. The rules don't just give you a set of opportunities. They should also be such that they ensure that whatever, if we were constantly worried about A, what we were going to eat, B, whether or not we were going to be attacked, C, whether or not people were going to steal from us, then it would be very difficult to build wealth or to create or invent things that were useful to millions of people. It would be almost impossible because we would be at the subsistence level. And so the rules, that is why private property is so essential to libertarianism, is that you, it has to be the case that if you put in the effort, society doesn't owe you anything, but at least that no one can come and steal from you what you have earned. That is an important part of this. And we don't have any civilization without that. 
And this is people who are minarchists. This is the purpose of government is to maintain the rule of law. That's it. And now they have become government wants to be a kingmaker and wants to say, well, you need a certain percentage of people that look like this and a certain percentage of people that look like that. And uh, we think that this money should go over here. And that is contrary to the ideas of private property and leads to a, a suboptimal distribution of resources. And the it isn't just that there are rules. It's that these rules are rules that enable you to comport yourself in the way that you see fit. And I'll explain. Not everyone is a computer scientist. We don't. We would all starve if everyone was a computer scientist. Mm -hmm. like we need farmers. We need doctors. I don't know if we need lawyers, but let's pretend that we do. <laughs> uh, so you know, we and this is what this all comes down to is what facilitates the division of labor, right? The reason anyone who's listening to this podcast has wealth is that well, you know, you have a machine that washes your clothes for you. Somebody else designed and built that machine, right? And all respect, my my parents come from a poor country. I've I've lived in India. I've washed my own clothes. I know what it is to wash clothes with a washboard, so I don't take it for granted that everyone has a washing machine. But the point I'm making is that it's the division of labor that makes us wealthy. Your ability to specialize on only the things that you uniquely do well and the market will uniquely pay you more than anyone else to do relative to all your other talents, relative to all the other uses of your time, is fundamentally a function of voluntarism and a function of private property. So all we want, all we're we're advocating for is a system where people are free to pursue the means and free to produce the things and offer those things on a market so that uh, we can all be richer together because that's exactly what the division of labor does because there's hundreds of thousands of jobs in a day that you don't do for yourself you simply pay someone else or something else to do and that is what gives us the free time to to do what we do uniquely well right like read Thomas Sowell, for instance, which is something that I'd love to be able to find some time to do. Unless I can get someone else to read it for me in audio form, and then I can just go for a walk while I'm doing it. Um, <laughs> but the, the the division of labor and, and these ideas of um, emergent order and the complexity at scale is a intuitive thing once you actually give it some time to think about. But there's a there's a, a dichotomy that I often think about fairly superficially um, with respect to complexity versus complicated. And my take is that complexity is inherently elegant. Uh, it's emergent. It's that organic emergent um, order that I guess Hayek talks about. Whereas complicated is kind of the centrally planned... Uh, laws upon legislation, upon edicts and mandates and all this sort of stuff. Uh, and you've got these two things. And so it's this constant push-pull between those, those uh, two realms. And we, we, we value complexity when we're looking upon it from like a, a, like a, from a galaxy or the universe or, um, you know, even uh, an anatomy of an animal or something like that um the the microbiological life in the soil so on and so forth but we want to make it we have this tendency or this urge collectively i suppose to make things complicated because we think that we can make it better somehow and interfere in doing that what's your deeper like take on that because mine's fairly superficial 
Yeah, I think those terms are definitely related, but also definitely not the same. So the uh, the short of what I was thinking while you were speaking was that complexity, when we refer to complexity, we refer, we refer to A, this concept of holism, which is that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts, and that the interactions between the parts uh, not only produce holistic effect, but they're usually too numerous to reckon or too numerous to model simply. And so for me, the big difference is that, well, I guess complexity has a formal definition, which I've just alluded to a little bit. But the difference is that uh, things which have admirable complexity are products of time and evolution. And so it isn't that the pro you mentioned the anatomy of an animal as an example. It isn't that the process of evolving the guts of an opossum to take just a random example mm -hmm. was somehow very neat or very well ordered or planned. It's just that in retrospect, this is an incredibly efficient solution because it is the byproduct of millions of years of trial and error and mm -hmm. mutation and, and adaptation, this process of evolution. Whereas when people come, I'll use this term, Latin term, medius race, and jump in the middle and say, oh, we're going to design this order, then yes, we get very complex bureaucracies and rules. And you can look at how big the Ethereum code base is as a very simple example, or just the blockchain itself. Uh, there is this tendency for things to become bloated and overcomplicated. So I think complex systems are complicated to model, but the difference between elegant complexity and things that we are in admirably complicated, as in prone to failure levels of complicated, is this kind of uh, rational and short-term planning or this pragmatic long-term, <laughs> has it survived for millions or billions of years? Okay, keep it. Yeah, Very different. okay, right. So it's almost like the culture outpaces the biology and almost to its detriment. I guess, because, you know, we have these short-term incentives to rectify certain things because we don't want harm, we don't want death or any, any these sorts of things. And so we look for ways to intervene to mitigate any such things. But if it was allowed to play out over a long enough time period, we would actually get fundamentally stronger. Like if we take the COVID episode, for example... Without any interference, we could have kind of let that play out and there would have been, you know, lots of people suffering, all sorts of harm and so on and so forth. Uh, and I'm not going to get into the complexities or, around that. But the point is, is that if we allowed people to act upon their own local knowledge and do what was best for themselves and perhaps their family, then the outcomes would be significantly different as opposed to this interference. And so we've got this, we, we could even have this quote unquote herd immunity, so to speak, and that the biology would eventually catch up to the culture if the culture would just, just, just halt for a moment and just, just wait. But we don't have that time, or at least we don't think we have that time for patients to wait and see, because we must act now. We must, you know, interfere somehow and we just forget that by pulling on one thread of the ball of yarn it's pulling on three or four others on the other side of the uh the the yarn and so it, it's cr it's creating unintended consequences and it's this cultural pace that's that's interfering with the slowness of the biology i think i'm making yeah, there, sense. there's a lot of interesting things to to kind of double click on there so so one is that that is an alternative. The traditional, the textbook definition of economics is 
how scarce resources with alternative uses are distributed. That's the textbook definition. And then, God, is I don't know if this was Henry Hazlitt, maybe it was, who studied under Mises, that economics is a study of hidden consequences. And that's certainly what you see in Bastiat, the law, things hidden. So we should be very interested in hidden consequences, number one. And then I think the, the pandemic is a very interesting case study. And there's a few distinctions I'd like to make. So the first is that having a freedom first strategy is not, repeat, not the same as doing nothing. And it's not the same as let it rip. And I want to explain that. A freedom first strategy says that you as an individual are free to take as many precautions as you choose. If you, you know, if you want to wear an N95 mask, if you want to not leave your house, you are within your rights to do that. And one of the things that Hayek mentions is that in in a system where there are multiple strategies possible, and this is the key point about freedom, other individuals who are maybe on the lagging end of the information curve can then observe which of these two strategies has been more successful. Okay. So as an example, the vaccine hesitancy in retirement homes was like zero because they were literally watching it. If you are, if you are older, then you have very high risk from the virus. But that fact was lost on governments. And there are, you know, multiple epidemiologists, uh, Jay Bhattacharya, I don't know if he's an epidemiologist proper. I think he's a PhD in economics and MD. But there was a more focused strategy that he called focus protection, which is like, hey, the individuals who should be locking down or we should be isolating are really the older individuals in the population. So the first point I wanted to make there again is that no, nobody who advocates for liberty is implicitly saying, oh, just let things happen. There's an earthquake coming. There's an asteroid coming. There's a virus coming. Don't do anything. That is a, that is a straw man. I, I know you're not saying that either. But what I want to point out is that what we the, the real choice for us is between distributed planning and central planning. Distributed planning means individuals make the decisions locally based on the information that they have. Central planning means just the opposite. Oh, we're going to look at a bunch of averages and we're going to make blanket decisions. I call it one size fits none for a large number of people. So I think the first point to note is that this is not the same as, oh, we're just going to let things happen because everybody, all the actors in this equation are thinking, feeling individuals. And this is the example that Mises gives. He says, well, if uh, I have a body of water, let's say I have a lake and uh, I, I throw a piece of wood into it, it will float based on the density of wood. If I throw a, a gold coin into it, it will sink based on the density of gold. And if I throw a human being into the lake, he may or may not swim. Like, I don't know. Does he know how to swim? There are so many questions. Like, what is this person's dent? Did people have different densities, one body over the other? And so I guess the, the, the first big point there is that uh, liberty is not a let bad things happen strategy. It's a let individuals make decisions based on the skin they have in the game. And let's find the best strategy together. And the second thing is that our responsible in our responsibility in a liberty first society is actually just to propagate accurate information so that people can make the best possible decisions. So this is very interesting to me because it's a new form of governance. And, you know, it's the same journey that I think all parents go through, which is, you know, you go from being the leader of your child to, be, to being their advisor at some point, right? Because you're not going to always be there. And I think this is the vision of a mature society is that we can provide good information and good examples. And then we have to allow individuals, at the end of the day, the individuals are always taking the risk. So we should allow them to act as they see fit. Why are these concepts so difficult to communicate to the, you know, average person? I mean, the, on the surface, they're just, they're just didn't make intuitive sense. And yet it gets shattered down by the interfering class, the, 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 the central centralized command and control class, the, the counterproductive class, you know, 
for some reason that's the signal that propagates or that's the noise that propagates over and above this signal of intuitive just you know um allow people to be yeah the i think there are two reasons so or multiple reasons so one is is fear and apprehension that like oh no they're saying just let it rip and just don't do anything and again that's a straw man nobody's saying that so i think i think one is fear and it was a point I wanted to make earlier is that we freedom is a muscle and we have to develop that muscle. All right. So mm-hmm. if we went to, you know, a completely lawless society today, I don't think it would work very well because we had culture hasn't built up a culture and individuals and the acculturation of those individuals hasn't built up. I don't know how to explain it enough integrity or enough tension and compression to, to kind of make that, that society work function in, in a harmonious way. The second reason why it's so hard to understand these concepts, uh, there are two other. So what is inertia, which is to say, Milton Friedman made this observation. He's like, government agencies don't get smaller. They get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And the reason is when they fail and, you know, look no further than 9-11, for an example, when they fail, these agencies don't go out of business, they get bigger. They're like, oh, well, you know, we obviously, we Department of Defense, we FAA, whoever it's going to be, we need more funding because this bad thing happened. Not, oh, we failed America. We're, we're fired. Right. So the, I think it's governmental inertia. Right. And the, we, the fact that we have governments it make them think that they need to do things. And they're really good at scaring people because that's one of the only ways that they can get the, the populace to act. And they're also uh, kind of incentivized instead of in being incentivized to have a best case, they're incentivized not to have a worst case. So they're very risk averse. And I think the the third thing is really our. I think it's just along the lines of cultural advancement and having information. I think both monarchies and democracies made more sense when few people had most of the information. That's just not true anymore. Right. Yeah, because it's it's so distributed, so decentralized. Anyone with a with a phone, with a with a modern day smartphone in their pocket has access to the entire history of the world. Yes. And it's both a an asset and a liability. And the liability part is like, I mean, I'm scared to say that I'm informed on climate change. I'm just not. It feels important. I would like to understand it, but I need, I don't know how many hours of reading to understand, to really understand the issue. And this is why, by the way, because we live in a complex system that we call earth uh, and a complex system we call society. There are so many, we inhabit a body that is a complex system and what that means is we should be skeptical of certainty under these circumstances. And uh, so, so this information is both a blessing and a curse. And the curse part is like, wow, there's so many dimensions and so many perspectives to consider. And it's very hard to even evaluate an argument purely on its merits because there are so many facts. And, and again, that's why the matter principle becomes important. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the access to that information, uh, you know, you can do what you will with it. But it's a responsibility at the end of the day. So I guess it's responsible. People have a responsibility to perhaps not comment upon things that they have no little to no understanding on. And that just as as a general guiding principle could could, uh, see great advancements in people's uh, interactions with one another. I mean, you know, you could defer each and every time and sometimes conversations might become boring, but I mean, the, the honest uh, way to go about it would be say, you know what, I actually don't know a heck of a lot about that particular thing, so I don't have anything to add. <laughs> we move on to the next thing. 
or ask a lot of questions. And, and, and that's how we learn together too, is this process of inquiry is like, Oh, what about this? What about that? And, you know, that's one of the disappointing things without naming any names that's happening in the scientific realm right now is uh, people who offered volunteered policies and scientific evidence that were very formative are now not willing to subject themselves to public scrutiny. And, you know, one can argue that a scientist's job is in the lab and not necessarily in public communications, but communicating science, whether it's done by that scientist or another one is also critical. And it only increases the cynicism of the public when people refuse to subject their ideas to scrutiny or, but there's a reverse problem too. I think you'll hear a lot of scientists say is like, well, I'm not, I'm a physicist. I'm not going to debate a flat earther because <laughs> we're both going to look crazy at that point. And what's the point in even addressing this conspiracy theory? But I think the truth is that the, the information of the debates have to be open so that, that individuals can acquire the knowledge and the understanding for themselves at whatever level, uh, given their expertise is possible. You mentioned earlier that when you discovered Bitcoin, having been exposed to it through your friend Balaji, and then being compelled to read Safe's book, which then took you down the Austrian rabbit hole, uh, the Austrian economics rabbit hole, and everything that sort of came out from that, I'm curious to know how has discovering Bitcoin changed you? I, it's given me more hope. And the hope is that even if we are centrally planned to death, or even if there is there are central authorities making suboptimal decisions that affect me and the rest of the planet every day, that I don't know that this is going to play out, but that we can create systems that are less subject to coercive control and monopoly. So it's given me faith for the future by showing you know, this is this voice versus exit idea. Voting is voice. Like, oh, change this. And I've increasingly lost faith. I'm not saying people shouldn't vote, but it's just really unclear. First of all, if a majority can even decide something because the majority is often wrong. And it's not even clear if at this size, it, it's even possible to get things done in a reasonable amount of time. Like the lag between your vote and actual policy changing is so enormous. So it's given me faith that uh, it is possible for individuals to redesign and recreate new systems in the world and to change the world around them. And also it is, if it, if Bitcoin is only a savings technology, that will be an amazing achievement for the world. And I think that when I call fiat currency an ice cube because, okay, you get a dollar today and that dollar really isn't a dollar in 18 months or 24 months or 36 months. And so it's also given me hope that maybe humanity can store their value in a way that it can be projected into the future. And I just think that's extraordinarily important because we are only human because we have low time preference. What does that mean? Animals, there are exceptions. Squirrels bury acorns. I think some birds can have some limited capacity to store food. But all you can do is consume all of the consumables right now, if you have no concept of the future and no ability to store those things. And that absolutely makes us animals. And so anything that lowers the time preference of humanity to me, and I see it a lot, I see people sacrificing whatever, you know, fancy doodads so that they can save in Bitcoin. That to me feels extraordinarily important for the, extraordinarily important for the development of virtue 
and a restraint and low time preference, which again is what I think makes us human and what drives civilization. Yeah, the ability to um, store, I guess, whatever capital that you have accumulated over time and defer some of that consumption into the future is literally the definition of creating a civilization. I mean, we just lived through, you know, the one of the greatest economic booms, the history of the planet with respect to the baby boomers, but a lot of their wealth came from the stored capital of their parents and grandparents that was accumulated, worked for, saved, and then got spent out in this just giant up, uptick of, of productivity and growth through, you know, what, the 20th century, so, to, so to, you know, the majority of the 20th century, shall we say. And now that's kind of been spent and that's why we've got all this enormous debt and everything like that. And so the whole point of the prosperity that we've experienced as a, as a you know, generally in the West, shall we say, uh, is because of the savings that had occurred a couple of generations prior. Yes. And this, this idea of capital accumulation, the fact that now maybe we have new ways to accumulate capital does give me hope for the future that we can project our economic energy forward. And I think the important thing to see here is that the entire point of Keynesianism, which is, let's say, a very strong influence on modern central planners, is that is to prevent savings. It's literally to prevent mattress stuffing. So the thing, it's very odd, but the thing Keynesians are most afraid of is that people keep money in their mattresses and don't spend it. Now, this is a false constructed fear, but it is very real. And the, therefore, the whole point of Keynesianism is to, you know, as you drop the interest rate, you're encouraging people to spend because they know the dollar is going to be worth less, let's say, in, and if you have negative real rates, really will be worth less. They know that $1 today, I might as well spend it today because it's going to be worth less tomorrow. And so it's kind of a goosing of the economy through, uh, you could say, artificial stimulus or essentially giving, not giving people better options. And the Austrian position is that the only mechanism, so there's something clear here, whether no matter what your position on liberty versus sadism is, you want technological improvements, you want rising standards of living, and you want higher wages. We all want those things. And Mises argues that they only come from capital accumulation. So we can have a new renaissance if there's massive capital in the hands of the individuals and they only spend it on things that they think are really, really valuable. That is a sea change. I don't know if all of fiat banking has to be destroyed before that voting mechanism really starts to work. But I'm certainly glad that Bitcoin exists as an option to start that phenomenon. What's interesting is in your answer before, when you talked about Bitcoin giving you hope and the capacity to save, you, no, no one actually, I don't think on this, in this podcast has ever answered that question with, well, you know, like it's, an, it's enabled me to get rich. <laughs> um, everyone answers it in this, in this quite... Um, philosophical way or just just a just an honest uh look man i just i like the fact that i don't get stolen from over time it's it's quite a nice feeling uh and i might be able to save a little bit for uh for a rainy day or for 
a future family or whatever the case may be. Um, it's never, it's never this superficial, just get rich thing. And yet a lot of people sitting on the outside of this, this phenomenon just think that everyone's in it to speculate and, uh, and, you know, cash out at the top so that they can, um, have more seashells at the end of the day. Yeah. And, and this, this concept, uh, I mean, again, the, the, the mother of all virtue is self-restraint and I think stoicism goes hand in hand in Bitcoin. And, you know, this is the only community I know where people will say, sell your chair, sell your chair and buy Bitcoin. And like in my circle of friends, it's totally like, haha, look at my beater car. <laughs> it's, tw- it's 21 years old. <laughs> I'm going to still drive it. Cause you know, I'm, I'm putting all my money into sats. And whether or not these people are right is actually irrelevant. It's the, this is the discovery mechanism of how markets work in the early days. And, you know, it's, it's much worse. What bothers me is not just that there's this misperception that, oh, people, I, by the way, I definitely think it's true. And I think people are in altcoins to get rich. And For sure. on the one hand, I can't blame them because, you know, no matter what the coin, you watch it go from zero to something a lot bigger than zero. And it's very tempting to, to participate in that game. But what really frustrates me is when in the United States, we have Senator Elizabeth Warren and she, in the name of trying to protect individuals and create fair circumstances, is doing just the opposite and making sure that only big institutions can invest in crypto. So what I'm saying that it's really ironic that uh, this perception that that crypto is a get rich quick scheme or a get get poor fast scheme, however you want to look at that or get scammed fast scheme. We're really just preventing individuals from participating in the network. And that's very unfortunate because you're, let's just take an example. Let's say we make Bitcoin safe. I don't even know what this means. And I hate this idea. and I would (laughs) fight it tooth and nail. Okay. Let's say we make Bitcoin safe. What does that mean? Well, and these laws already exist for certain assets. You have to be a qualified investor. You must have this many liquid assets. It's the same way with venture capital as an asset class. Only rich people can have access. And if they overregulate Bitcoin, they're going to destroy this price discovery mechanism and they're going to destroy the someone in a ghetto right now who says, hmm, this Bitcoin thing might be useful for me and my family. Don't deny them that opportunity. Yeah, let's let's try not to uh, impose our, our notion of safety onto this um, neutral protocol <laughs> that literally is just a, a triple entry ledger. Yes, and, and their the world. idea of safety is also deeply perverted. Their idea of safety is what worked for our ancestors. Maybe, maybe. In other words, that's just a, there's no, the future is much more dynamic than central planners will ever, ever realize. And it's, it's like them trying to regulate the internet. And you've heard all in the United States, we, we still say <laughs> there was a Senator who got on the floor and said, the internet is a series of tubes. And I guess all we can do is encourage better mental models. We can talk about Bitcoin. We can talk about how it works. We can talk about liberty. We can talk about how that works. And that's the most important thing that I think people listening to the podcast can do is socialize a cleaner, better, more evolved, and more humane set of ideas. And, and I think Bitcoin is part of that set. Yeah, it reminds me of this uh, Thomas Sowell quote, safety advocates who say that we shouldn't take chances, but should ban things that might be unsafe. Uh, don't seem to understand that if we banned every food to which somebody had an allergy, we could all starve to death. I mean, aside from the fact that Thomas Sowell just has this incredible way of condensing extremely complex notions, thoughts, concepts 
into just a sentence. <laughs> you know, he does this over and over again. But that that idea of um, it, it's this intention of of these other of these people uh, to to sort of Im- project their own notion of safety onto onto others. It's it's just you know it's nuts. Yeah, and let's see if we can dissect a little bit what he's actually saying there. Is that there is no one size fits all. There's one size fits none. So it isn't that maybe maybe someone's kid has a gluten allergy or has celiac disease. No problem. But then if you say, hey, like, you know, you do make the standard political arguments. Oh, X, X many people this year will be hospitalized this year due to gluten intolerance or whatever. Uh, you, you've just eliminated one of the most important foodstuffs for a huge part of the planet, and that is wheat. And I'm not saying I may or may not eat wheat. That's not the point. The point is, is that we shouldn't confuse our individual preferences or what makes certain select individuals feel safe with what constitutes safety or prosperity for the group as a whole. And this is a very simple, different strokes, different folks. Okay, I have an opinion about something. Something has certain risks. An extreme example of this is like raw milk is illegal in some parts of the United States. Like, I just can't get over this. This is so preposterous. It's illegal in Australia, bro. It's the worst (laughs) thing ever. What is this? Like, this is... (laughs) I've, don't even get me started on it. And then and it's not raw milk. It's just milk. <laughs> anyway, uh, it's just laughable. I mean, it's, it's laughable, but, but this is what the, the safety advocates of the world, this is the world we live in now where we've rounded off all the corners of everything. And you know what, what this actually shows, and there's a name for this in philosophy. So you can actually show that when people have a helmet or a safety harness, they actually take more risks. Okay. And so there's an ontological experiment, which basically says, or philosophical experiment, which basically says we should put sharp steel spikes on every steering wheel so that people will drive more carefully. Okay. (laughs) And it's just a thought experiment. And it's like, there's something to it, right? The reason why humans on balance make good decisions in the real world is because they will suffer if they do something wrong. Politicians, on the other hand, make decisions for millions of people and pay no price whatsoever for being wrong. And this is one of Sowell's biggest points. Yeah, the, the, there's another uh, quote that I, I just reminded me while you were talking. Uh, it's T.S. Eliot. Uh, he says, half of the harm that is done in this world is due to people who want to feel important. Uh, they do not mean to do harm, but they are absorbed in the endless struggle to think well of themselves. And that's literally politicians writ large. That's the centralized bureaucracy. That's processes before outcomes. That's the whole thing is just... It's just one big ego trip, really. Yes, and I think it's. I think you meant to say outcomes over process. So in other words, they don't trust Correct, the market sorry. process, but they they want to produce specific outcomes. Yeah, wholeheartedly agree. And this is this busybody syndrome. And you know, someone brought up this example that, like, you know, if if someone says they have a vegan cat, then we we would both know who's really making the decisions. Like, it's not the cat that's making those decisions. And there are any number of social issues now, I won't even name them, and the listeners will know exactly what I'm talking about, where parents are making very long-term drastic decisions for their children very, very early. And they use their children as political puppets to make a statement without any, well, without, it seems to me at least, concern for their long-term outcomes, their long-term health, their long-term safety, and their long-term happiness. And so this desire to feel important, you know, that is very much a political adult phenomenon where you're supposed to conspicuously display a certain characteristic 
but it may or may not even be good for you or good for other people because the credit is purely social. It's purely admiration in the eyes of others, but it doesn't actually produce anything for you or for your family. Yeah, that's that's uh, that's a hot button topic that I uh, I'm going to leave to other people. <laughs> You're right. Yeah, I noticed I didn't say what the topic was, <laughs> which is great, and so people can make their own decisions about what I think it's generally true. I, I'm I'm really like digging this conversation, man, because um, I guess the original intent of the pod is to sort of you know take uh, uh, get an understanding of people's personal journey in and around Bitcoin. But uh, you're reminding me of sort of Rigel Walsh's take on discovering Bitcoin. I think it was episode nine, uh, where he he we are effectively discovering Bitcoin from this particular uh, angle of centralized versus um, decentralized, complex versus com- complicated um, dichotomies, the, the, the bureaucracy, um, interference, central planning, and so on and stuff. Uh, it's really cool. It's a, it's a really nice way to come at Bitcoin because it is this neutral protocol and you can imbue it with all, all manner of things. But what it does is crystallize and focuses up, um, I guess, the truth in the world. And you can, you can use it as a really nice gauge uh, or filter of noise such that you can get some signal on the other side. Kind of reminds me of that, the cover of Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon, you know, the, um, the refracted oh, right. uh, triangle. So one, you know, one, one side going in. I, I want to sort of bring this into land because I'm mindful of time, but uh, I, I do want to ask, what have you learned about the world and yourself since discovering Bitcoin? Hmm, I've learned to appreciate complexity. I have learned that we, if we have more common terms that we can communicate with, that we can communicate better and be more productive together. And so in the world of science and engineering, we have to be very precise, even pedantic, to build something together. Uh, The example I like to give is if you try and build a building with people who all have different conceptions of what a meter is, you're not going to get very far. And so Bitcoin to me has taught me, uh, A, how to be politically active while being apolitical. So I'm deeply frustrated by, I don't think voting is helping. I I hope to be wrong. I'm not saying don't vote. Uh, So Bitcoin for me is an outlet, a political outlet that's not political, number one, because the position I think of Bitcoin is just drain the current system of its power and you don't have to worry about whether it's a good system or a bad system. And then the second one is is just um, having a greater appreciation for economics and how how people can interact. And I think that the the global economy is all about division of labor and it's not a zero sum game. It's not one person doesn't get richer because another person gets poorer. We can all get richer together and we do that through voluntary exchange. So yeah, Bitcoin has taught me and, and encouraged me a lot to learn about economics. And I hope we can make it what it wants to be, which is globally sound money that we all that we share and allows us to participate and interact under the division of labor. Beautiful. Now, I normally ask this as a last question, which is how do you explain Bitcoin? Uh, and you're free to, 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 to answer that. But I actually have this new question that I kind of want to start introducing, which is what was the aha moment that you had in and around Bitcoin? They might be the same thing. So Could be. The aha moment for me was the concept of digital gold. And that is usually where I will start a discussion. If I'm starting from zero, I will engage somebody in a discussion around what made gold valuable. 
And what's interesting is that whether or not they studied the history or the chemistry of gold, most people have a good sense of why it's valuable. Okay, it's scarce, it's internationally accepted, it has some what I would call commodity uses as jewelry. It's it's has some kind of I don't like this term, it has some value associated with it. And that was the light bulb for me, really, is that hey, we have asymptotic or, or scarcity, there's a finite supply of Bitcoin that at least solves the problem of central banking, which is there's just an arbitrary money supply. And it's more when the central bankers say it's more and it's less when they say it's less. And that includes the Federal Reserve. It's not just the central bankers. It's the central bank themselves. So yes, I, I think I don't think it's a perfect metaphor, but uh, I think engaging people in a discussion around, hey, what is gold? Why is it valuable? And then saying, Hey, have you noticed that everything that was physical became digital? Like we used to have paper tickets. You had to have a paper ticket. Now we have digital. You just get it on your phone as a QR code. You scan it. Or another example, we, we used to have physical stores. You had to go like go to a place and try on some shoes and try on a coat. And now, you know, we have these digital, we have digitized versions of these assets. You still get the physical. But yeah, engaging in that discussion around what is gold, what would a digital gold look like? That's where I, I have started. I, I don't know that I've always been successful with my family and I'm still teaching and explaining to them, but that, that feels like a good place to start. Do you think people, when they, when they hear that, it, it, because it doesn't jive with what they've taught, like let's say the neural pathways are so set even though we know of of you know, the plasticity of the brain and that you can rewire it uh, as required it's almost like this calcification is is embedded and people are just not compelled enough or curious enough uh to to push beyond that to sort of defrag that 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 Allow that inf that new information to defrag them themselves, kind of like the, the scientists you were mentioning before. Like they just double down, double down, double down until they're set in their ways, and then it's, you can't teach a, an old dog new tricks type thing. Yeah, I, I think so. First of all, skepticism is a safety mechanism. So people, and it's probably a very good, very well evolved one, right? If something's already working for people, hey, I have a job, I pay rent. I use this thing called dollars, whether they're Australian dollars or US dollars, doesn't matter, that they, they stick to what's working for them. So there's two aspects to that. One is all we can do is plant the seed. And sometimes you don't even know that you're planting the seed. In other words, in advertising, there's this idea that people have to, they need an impression at least three times before they remember a brand. So it's going to be a slow process for some people, point number one. And point number two, not everyone is going to come over in the first wave. And so technological diffusion comes in waves. And it's not like, oh, we had zero users. Now we have 7 billion. That's not going to happen. Nothing works that way. It's going to be like, oh, we have an early majority. We're more, well, we have innovators. We have early adopters. Now we have an early majority. Now we have a late majority. And so I guess people who aren't willing to defrag or reprogram, God bless them. Uh, we can, it's not our job to convince them. Our job is is to continue to grow in the areas where we can to show them the El Salvador's of the world, and they'll come when they come, if at all. Man, awesome! It's always like very nerve wracking for me to get galaxy brains like yourself on the pod because I'm just constantly concerned that I'm trying, like I'm just not going to be able to keep up, and I really don't think I did in this conversation. But man, I I do my best. I always get back to Nifty Nye. Um, 
Lisa Nugget, who who talks about the the two sides of Bitcoin. You've got the the um, engineering side, and then the liberal arts side. And you know, I definitely fall upon the, uh, the liberal arts side. And that's where a lot of my <laughs> background and training has come from. So to dip my toe into these realms of of people like yourself who just have uh, an incredible recall and ability to articulate these uh, these concepts. Uh, for people to understand, you know, that's, that's the main thing I, I hope that people got from all of this is, is maybe it's, it's credit an itch somewhere that they just need to now go ahead and scratch. So dude, thank you for t- spending some scarce time, finite energy, uh, telling us the tale of how you discovered Bitcoin and diving into all of the other, uh, things that float in and around this, um, triple ledger entry neutral protocol that we, uh, imbue so much meaning into uh it's it's been a lot of fun man thank you thank you so much i i want to say i enjoyed the conversation and i would encourage you never there's no such thing as a galaxy brain everyone can explain themselves i i think you followed the conversation beautifully and i guess my fear is explaining things that nobody cares about or nobody understands <laughs> so there because that doesn't help anyone either you know there's a certain set of people who respond to very intellectual ideas but i will take the concrete and pragmatic position that if we can't explain bitcoin in simple terms what good is it and that's why i'm very encouraged to see the people of el salvador use it so never hesitate never be leery of asking simple questions i think the truth it's not easy, but it has some simple elements to it. And I, I appreciate what you're doing. And I hope that some people will be encouraged to, to start their journey or continue their journey in Bitcoin hearing what we had to say. Just...